Well, good morning. It is an exciting morning, is it not? To see uh, someone who is convicted by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to, in obedience, uh, come in baptism in order to identify not only with the Lord Jesus Christ and the triune God, but with his local church. And so we are, again, delighted, again, to see those steps of obedience in the Christian walk. Well, this morning, we're not going to go to the book of Romans like some of you had anticipated. And now I know some of you are going to complain because I said we were going there. But I did try to warn some of you that we would, we would be veering from Romans for one week, and we'll pick up on Romans chapter 1 next week. But this morning, in, in lieu of the fact that we are having a baptism, I thought, what better time then to address the fact of baptism. What is baptism? We often have grown up in our traditions and we have assumed what baptism is and we have assumed how it's done. And so we often have forgotten the principles that got us to where we believe and what we believe. And so this morning I wanted to address that because baptism has been a controversy in church history. It has split the church often, and in fact, there have been those who have felt so strong about baptism that they have been willing to kill others in order to purify the church. And so we don't live in a time like that, and so it's, it's a little easier maybe for me to address this in this day and age where I don't have a, a state church that will decide that what I'm teaching is wrong and off with the head and on with the cabbage. So I do appreciate that part. But I would say this, because the baptism has been debated in church history does not mean that this problem is unsolvable or that the scriptures are not clear. And in fact, I think we can be quite sure that as we go to the word of God and as we exegete it faithfully in context, we will find that baptism is exactly as it is described in scripture and therefore we can be sure of it. We know this. Because the forms of baptism are so different, we know that only one can be right. We know that nothing that is true can also not be true at the same time, and so we know that only one view can be right. And maybe we live in a time where the church has become apathetic to this, because after all, in a, church, in a day and age where the, the church has become shallow, where the teaching is shallow, where we're just told to come and follow Jesus because he's going to make our life great, and we appeal to people's flesh to bring them into the church, should it be no surprise that the visible church is actually filled with many of those, though even though they may have come to salvation, remain unbaptized because they don't see the importance of it. And yet the Lord gave us two ordinances. He gave us the Lord's Supper, and he gave us baptism, and he commands us, to partake in them. And so if it's important to the Lord Jesus Christ, and and especially with baptism, is one of the things that the Lord has laid out for the church to do, then we better do it, and we better do it right. Now, many will want to appeal to history at this point, and they will say, well, history, the church does this, the church has done that. 
Well, we can get into historical arguments, but the reality is that we do not live by history. History is not an exegeter of Scripture. Scripture is. And so we cannot appeal to history as if history is the final arbiter in an argument. In fact, we can have arguments back and forth as to what form of baptism was takes, took place in church history and who did what when. But oftentimes in history, just like at the Reformation, history needs to be corrected as it was in the Reformation where the church went back to the true gospel. So too, in this area, we must go back to the scriptures to make sure that we are doing baptism right. And so this morning, as we, as we go through some scriptures here this morning, I want us to see four reasons why we at Bowmanville Baptist practice believers' baptism. In other words, why do we as Baptists actually practice believers' baptism, specifically bap uh, <laughs> believers' baptism by immersion? And so this morning, I want us to take a look at the Word of God, and we want the Word of God to speak on this subject so that when we leave here, that we are convinced in our hearts that the Word of God has been clear on this subject, and we understand that believer's baptism is exactly what the Scriptures teaches. So before we go to that this morning, why don't we go to, a, uh, to the Lord in a word of prayer so I can get a drink of water, and then we will start our way through. Heavenly Father, again, I just pray that you would uh, loosen my tongue this morning, that the truths of your word would come through, and that we would be, again, convinced by it, and recognize that the patterns laid out in scriptures are the patterns that you have left there for us to follow, and therefore we can be sure. And so this morning, I pray your Holy Spirit would illuminate the truths of your word, and that he would teach us, convince us, and that we would go forth rejoicing that we can know the truth, I pray. In your name, amen. Well, we're going to go through four reasons, and this morning I simply want to start with this reason number one. Believer's baptism is consistent with the New Testament example, or we could say the example in Scripture. In fact, we have no other example in Scripture. There is no other demonstrable, explicit demonstration of baptism apart from the baptism of believers. If you want to put any other kind of baptism into scripture, you are going to have to insert it because it is in the white pages of your scriptures. It is not in the words and there is no teaching on anything except believers baptism. Now, one of the things that we want to recognize and maybe some of the things that we, we don't see is when Jesus gave the Great Commission, I want you to listen to what he said. He said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Lo, I am always with you, even to the end of the age. Now notice what he says here. Go therefore and what? Make disciples of the nations, what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What do you do with disciples? You baptize them. 
In other words, there's an assumption here that as they go forth and give the gospel, that people are saved, believe, and then are what? Baptized. So it is right in the great commission that God gives to the church, go and make disciples, baptizing them. And once you baptize them, you just keep teaching them so they're obedient to the word of God. In other words, that first step of obedience now leads to other steps of obedience as they continue to follow after. Now, as we continue through the the New Testament, we will see over and over again the example that you hear the gospel, repent of your sin, believe in Jesus Christ, and then you are a recipient of baptism. Peter commands his listeners in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, we know salvation is by grace alone, by faith alone. And we know that no one generally in our circles or in reform circles would actually believe that baptism is salvistic, but rather be repent because of forgiveness of sins. In other words, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. But Peter again says to those who had heard the gospel, they had heard the preaching... They had heard what Paul, what Peter had said about the Lord Jesus Christ and who he was. And he says, we were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brother, what shall we do? Verse 37, those who received his word were what? Baptized. In other words, baptism came after what? Belief. And so the the example starting at the very beginning of the church was that when you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, when you heard the gospel and believed, you were what? Baptized. That is the example. If we continue on in Acts, if we remember the story of the Samaritans to whom Philip preached... Philip went and preached the gospel. When they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both what? Men and women. In other words, Philip comes to the Samaritan and he preaches the gospel. And what did they do? They believed. They believed who Jesus Christ was. They came in faith and they what? Were baptized. That is the biblical example that we see. If we continue on in verses 26 to 40, Philip encounters the Ethiopian eunuch. Beginning with the prophet Isaiah, whose prophecy the eunuch was reading and seeking to understand at the time, encountered in verses 34 and 35, if we just look at that quickly in Acts. Chapter 8, he was reading this. He was led to, as a sheep to a slaughter and a lamb before its shear is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me of whom does the prophet say of this? of himself or someone else. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning from the scripture, he preached who? Jesus to him. 
and they went along the road, they came to water, and the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from what? Being baptized. So again, the example is what? Hear the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, believing, and what? Baptism. And Philip said, if, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is what? The Son of God. There it is, the declaration of belief. And he ordered the chariot to stop. And both of them went down into the water. Notice that. They went into the water. And Philip as well as a eunuch. And he what? Baptized him. Baptizo. To immerse. To put under the water. To drown, that word can be used for. He got him fully wet. All of them. And so he was baptized. We have another example, Cornelius. Similarly, while Paul was proclaiming the good news to Cornelius and his household, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who had heard the word. Now we're getting into this area here where some of you might be thinking, I have this thing tinging in the back of my mind that's saying, but what about the households? What about the households? Weren't, maybe there was children there. How, how do we know there wasn't children there? Well, let's take a look at the witness that's here, and then maybe we'll have a clearer understanding as we go through. So Peter is proclaiming the good news to Cornelius and his household. The Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who receive the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So here is this household, the Holy Spirit fell upon them who what? Heard the word. The Holy Spirit fell upon those who, are, who heard the word. And then he says, how can we withhold what? Baptism from who? Those whom the Holy Spirit fell upon. Those who believed in the Holy Spirit fell upon. And again, Luke, in his second account in Luke 18, when he speaks of this, the reaction of the church to Cornelius' conversion was to glorify God and to say, to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. In other words, they recognized that there was repentance that turns to life. That's why they were baptized. And again, those who were what baptized were the ones who heard the gospel, those who repented and received the Holy Spirit. Well, you might say, well, that's good for Cornelius, but what about the Philippian jailer? I remember something about the Philippian jailer. Well, the Philippian jailer, we remember as Paul and Silas were singing, the earthquake came. And he, come, he comes to Paul and Silas and says, what must I do to be what? Saved. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And the idea there with the language is this. This is available to you if you believe and it is available to what? Your household. Now there's something that I want us to understand. The household in the first century did not, was not just the nuclear family. It included servants and guests and, and slaves and whoever was in the household. So it, 
it's, we have to get away from the idea that we're thinking mom, dad, and the three children here. It is a household that is larger than the nuclear family. Now notice this, he says, it is, you will be saved, what, you and your household, in other words, through belief. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in the house. Now they're, they're sharing the gospel with them. And he baptized, at, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Now you think, aha, there's room for children here. There's room for children here. Read verse 34. And he brought them into the house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God, what? With his whole household. In other words, the whole household believed. Whoever is there, whoever is the household, means they what? They believed. So we still have no room. We have nothing explicit outside of the fact that there are those who believed and were baptized. We think of the household of Crispus. There's five of these households. During his second journey, Paul was occupied with the word and testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus, Acts 18.15. Luke notes the impact of Paul's ministry. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. What did they do? Believed and were what? Baptized. Like, like the preceding narratives, this case, uh, household baptisms gives us adequate information about who is being baptized. Those who what? Believed. They heard the gospel and believed. And so the, the biblical example here is households believing, be, beca- believing and being baptized. In other words, you needed to be capable of hearing the message, responding to the message, coming in faith and repentance, and to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. We think of Lydia in the case of Lydia. God, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul was saying after she was baptized in her household as well. Now, you might be tempted because there are not full details here to think, well, maybe, just maybe, there was infants there. But it is very unlikely that if Lydia was the head of her home and she was having the disciples into her home, that there was a male figure in the place. Therefore, she is probably of that age and unmarried or widowed, and there are no infants there. But again, the only thing that's recorded that's her and her household is baptized. We get to Stephanus. Paul says in, about baptizing some in Cor- in, of the Corinthians, I did not baptize very many except also what the house of Stephanus. I, I, I actually baptized the house of Stephanus. But as we continue on and we hear more about Stephanus, the household of Stephanus were the first to converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to what? The service of the saints. In other words, the household devoted themselves to the service of the saints. It's hard for infants to serve the saints. It's just hard, right? And so the idea here is, again, it is those who believed and responded in faith. 
It's clearly a reference to those who embrace the gospel engaged in fruitful ministry. Now it's interesting because in John 4.53, there is the healing of the son. And he says, the father knew that it was the hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household and the idea, again, is those that they what? They believed. Who believed? The whole household believed. Now, there's no mention of baptism here. It just says that the whole household believed. And what we start to see here is that every time we hear household, it is a reference to the adults who have responded in faith and repentance to the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore Anytime we hear household, we, we, we are thinking of who? Believers. And so the only biblical example that we have, the only thing that we explicitly have then, are references to those who are believers who are baptized. Now some might say, yeah, yeah, Maybe, but what about, what about those other verses? What about that's the specialness of children? Maybe, maybe there's actually a place for children to be baptized because they were special to Christ. Remember in Matthew 18, he says, Truly, uh, he called a little child to himself and said that, before him and he said truly I say to you unless you are converted and become like children you will not enter the kingdom of heaven whoever humbles then himself as a child he is the greatest of the kingdom of heaven and whoever receives one such child in my name receives me but whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea now in context, as we put this in, in full context, we recognize that the disciples are in the midst of one of their discussions. They like to go to that discussion of who is the greatest of us all? Who is the greatest? Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Who, who is top dog? Humble, humble men, right? And so they are, they are in that midst of that discussion. And so Jesus takes a child and puts it on his lap as an illustration. He puts it on his lap as an illustration and he says, unless you become like a child, you will not enter the kingdom of God. In other words, you need to humble yourself. You need to come as a child comes. You have nothing to offer in the relationship. You have nothing to give. You simply come and, and receive. And so Jesus' point here has got nothing to do with baptism and everything to do with with the need to humble oneself and to come to Christ, not in your own strength, in your own power, but in what? In humility, recognizing you have nothing to offer. And so he calls us to, when we come in salvation and we come to him, we must come with nothing. We bring nothing to the table. Children are dependent. If they were not taken care of, they die. And so we must come, not pretending like we have something to offer, but with the realization that we have nothing to offer. Well, pastor, that sounded all right, but what about that verse that says 
that if you're a believer, your children are holy. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12, But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if my brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. So maybe there's something here that says that you're in, in a Christian home, your children are particularly special and related to the church in some way. Is that what Paul is teaching? Well, again, he's teaching here in the context of what? Marriage. There's no baptism in this verse at all. He's talking in the course of marriage, and he says, if how... There are confusion in the, in the Corinthians. How do we live with our unsafe spouse? Now that we're a believer, how do we behave? And Paul says, stay married. Stay married if you can. And he says, stay married, he says, because as you live a Christian life, as you live according to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and in obedience to him, he says you bring the graces that come with being a believer into your relationships, whether it be your marriage or with your children. And your children now have the joy to be living with a believer who is living in the graces of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is blessing in God's ways. God's ways are good. Don't you want a spouse who's faithful? Don't you want children, a, a parent who is who is trustworthy and loving and caring and doing what's best for you. Well, God's, God's ways are that way. And so he says, actually, living, your children are made, as it were, to, to experience the graces that come with living with a believer who's living in obedience. So he says, he's not, he, certainly we know that you are responsible for yourself and that holiness cannot be given to you by somebody else. No one else can make you holy. No one can make you set apart for God and no one can make you sinless. So he cannot be saying here that children are made what? Holy and right before God because of their saved parents. Paul is simply saying there is a grace that comes by living with the believer. Now, some others have said, well, I, I, I have another verse for you, Pastor, and I think you, should, I think you need to look at this one. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 38 and 39, and we, we read verse 38, Peter said, Repent, each of you, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. So there are some that would say, look, look at this promise here. There's a promise of the Holy Spirit, and it's a promise not just to you, but to your children. And so they say, see, look, if we baptize children... This is promissory on this promise that they will receive the Holy Spirit later on. But is that what Peter is teaching? 
Well, what does Peter say? Repent. Repent, each of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, you need to repent. When you repent, you receive what? The Holy Spirit. And this promise is for you, you who what? You who repent and who? Your children. In other words, the next generation. He's not speaking as if he's speaking here. He doesn't use the word for infant here. He uses the word technon, which is a word for any child. In other words, it's available also to your children. If they will repent, they too can be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit. And so there is nothing here at all that refers to anything about children being baptized. And so we would need, we need to recognize that the New Testament pattern is always repent, believe, and be baptized. We have no other pattern in Scripture. And it, the pattern is clear, it, it is consistent, and you would need overwhelming proof that there was any other purpose for baptism than believer's baptism. Well, believer's baptism is consistent with the New Testament witness, but it is also consistent with the symbolism of baptism. In other words, it is consistent with the purpose of baptism. In other words, we have to understand that water baptism, the physical act, is an expression of an inward reality. It is a physical sign of a spiritual change. In other words, baptism is to demonstrate to us outwardly what has happened to us spiritually inside. If we look at Romans chapter 6, we see Paul express this idea on what baptism is. Romans chapter 6. He says in verse 3, Or do you not know that all of us have been baptized, have been baptized into Jesus. Okay, I'll start again. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And so Paul is now speaking of a spiritual reality and a spiritual baptism that was supposed to be understood through water baptism. In fact, he says, or do you not know? And the idea is you should know this. You actually should know this. You should know that water baptism signifies this. And you should know that you have been spiritually baptized. And again, Paul is speaking in the context of, of dealing with sin here. And he says, you should know that you are baptized into Christ. In other words, you should recognize what this is. And he says, you have been baptized into Jesus. You have been, 
And so the idea here, when you, were convert, when you converted, you were baptized into Christ. Well, what does that mean? It, it means when you became a Christian, you were brought into an intimate living union with Jesus Christ. Salvation isn't just God up in heaven making a record that you're saved. But rather, it is when we come to Christ, we are actually put in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Our lives become fused with the life of Christ. And that's why we, use, we could use the word baptizo, the word for baptism. We are immersed into Jesus Christ. So when you become a Christian, you're immersed into Jesus Christ, you're fused into Jesus Christ, and you become to have a life with him. Well, that's not very clear, is it? I'm fused with Christ. What, what does that mean? Well, I think and the example, and we, we talked about this when we went through Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we talked about Israel being baptized into Moses. The children of Israel were, were being baptized in the wilderness into Moses. So what does it mean? It means that they were under the authority of Moses. They participated in the, his leadership. They participated in his Mosaic privileges. They participated in the Mosaic blessing. They did what God did in his life, and it reached the people. In other words, their life was completely consumed. They were in that sphere of Moses. They were in obedience, following his leadership, participating in what he did under his authority. God was involved in every area of Moses' life, and he says, so too now we are under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are now under, we now participate in his leadership. We now live a life that is lived for his glory and in his blessings in, in his life. I think this is what he's referring to in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 when he says we've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. We are now completely covered with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is working in us and through us. He baptizes us. He immerses us. We are fused immensely deeply into Jesus Christ. To some ways it's a mystery. But now our life, we live in the sphere of Christ and we are, we are together with him. First John says, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. In other words, that is where we fellowship. That is where we live. First Corinthians 6.17, he that is joined to the Lord is what? One spirit. In other words, we are, we are now fused together. And now we live a life that is empowered by him. Galatians 3.20 says, as many of you have been baptized into Christ have what? Put on Christ. In one sense, we're being immersed in Christ. In one sense, we're just putting him over, over us. And so our life has now been fused together with Christ. We are now together with him. And then he says specifically, how are we identified with Christ? We are specifically identified with his death, and resurrection, with his death and resurrection. He says in verse, at the end of verse 3 and beginning of verse 4,
Or do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, have been what? Baptized into his death. And then he clarifies it. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In other words, we have been fused with Christ and we have been now baptized into Christ and we were baptized into him and the fact that we were baptized, what? Into his death. In other words, it's as if when we came to salvation that we were by some divine miracle placed into Christ and we were taken back 2,000 years and you died and were buried and you were buried so that your old life could die and you could rise to walk in newness of life. A death took place and what comes out of the grave is something very different than what you went into the grave with. If any man be in Christ, he is what? A new creation. And so baptism was supposed to be an example and a demonstration of what happened spiritually. What happened to us spiritually? We died. In other words, our old self died. It went into, and that's why when we baptize through immersion, we demonstrate the death and going into the burial with Jesus Christ by going under the water. We die. And we are dead. We are dead to sin. We, and then we are raised back up to what? Newness of life. In other words, we are raised back to life. And what comes out of there is not the same. And we've talked about this, but I want to make this clear. What takes place here is a transformation, not an addition. When you die, the old self died, and it is what? Resurrected. There is a transformation, and your old nature dies and you are given a new nature you are a new creature in Christ and Paul says this is what baptism is supposed to demonstrate that you spiritually came in faith and repentance and you died to sin and you raised what to newness of life you're now it's not new as in chronology it's not like or But the idea is new in quality. You have a new quality of life. It's not like the old life. It's now a life that has righteous patterns, that that desires to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not saying that you don't have, that you still don't sin and struggle with sin, but there is a compass that's pointed towards God, and that's just where it goes. And though you may get distracted, it just keeps going back to north. And he says, that's what a believer is. I've given you a newness of life. You live in a new sphere, a new quality of life. You have the life of Christ. And again, the Bible speaks of terms like this. He calls it a new heart. He calls it a new spirit. He calls it a new creation, a new creature, a new man. He says in Revelation, you get a new name. We have a new song in what? Everything is new. And he says, this was what takes place at salvation. You are died with Christ. You repent of your sins. You are made new. You are regenerated and become a new creature. And your old nature is given new abilities and transformed. Just like Christ's body went into the grave, a physical normal body, but came out as a what? A new body, right? Just like we'll get a new body, he had a new body when he came out. He's still recognizable, 
but a new quality. And so we too go down into the grave, come back a new creation, a new nature. And so the purpose of baptism as we baptize people then is to demonstrate this reality. Paul says it is. He says it again in Colossians chapter 2. This is what baptism is. And he basically scolds them. But don't you know this, that you have been baptized this way? And so the scriptures know no other symbolism or a reason for baptism. You will not find another reason to be baptized. Outside of the command to be baptized, it is an expression of conversion. So to give baptism for any other reason than conversion is to corrupt what the Bible teaches that it's supposed to symbolize. And so you cannot be baptizing in any other way than baptizing a believer because only a believer has actually can testify that this has happened inside and now is demonstrating it to the world. And so it is consistent with the... With Again, with the symbolism of baptism, it is consistent with it. And so if the Bible says this is what it is, this is what it demonstrates, then we must what? Obey. We must obey. And you, I challenge you, you can go through your, the Bible and you will not find one single scripture that will tell you that baptism is to be done for any other reason or that it symbolizes anything else except for this. Well, thirdly, it is also consistent with the new covenant. It is consistent with the new covenant. In the Old Testament, the way to be connected to the Abrahamic covenant and the Old Covenant was through circumcision. And circumcision brought you physical and national promises, primarily. It was actually a picture, not of salvation, but the need for cleansing, the need for a new heart. And you were circumcised regardless if you had faith or not. It made you part of the covenant people who would now receive the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant if you were obedient to the old covenant, but it did not save you. And we know that there was a remnant within Israel that were believing, but most of Israel was unbelieving. In fact, Romans 9, 6 tells us, but it is not through the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. In other words, there are physical descendants of Israel and there are spiritual descendants and they are not the same or not all the same. Isaiah said there is a remnant, right? Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be what? Saved. Yet the circumcision was given to what? All Jewish males and all those who are proselytes who stayed in the land of Israel. It's interesting because when you think about it, half the population didn't get circumcised. Only the males. In the New Testament, 
we are told that there is a what? A new covenant. A new covenant. And this covenant was promised in the Old Testament. It was a, te- a, new, a new covenant that would be given. And I want you to notice this. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand and brought them out of Israel. I mean, out of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their hearts and I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each, his, each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin and I will what? Remember them no more. I want you to notice this. Of all the things that Jeremiah could have said about the new covenant, he says in verse 34 that they will what? They will all know me. In other words, the only way to be related to the new covenant is to be what? A believer. To be a believer. The only way that you can be right with God is to be a believer. It is not parallel to circumcision. It does not, do, does not set for the same thing. Baptism is distinct from circumcision because circumcision is only for who? I mean, the new, <laughs> baptism is only for who? Those who are related to the new covenant. In other words, you cannot be related to the new covenant unless you are a believer and only believers are baptized. And so the circumcision would, would give you, oh, you could be an unbeliever and get the physical and national promises, but not the spiritual ones. Only The only way to be related to the new covenant is to be what? To know God. To know God. And so it's not the same as the Abrahamic covenant. It is a separate covenant that puts you in relationship to God through what? Salvation. Well, fourthly, just quickly, consistent with the nature of the church. Believers' baptism is consistent with the nature of the church. The church has never been described as a group of people who are identified with Christ, and there's one group that is particularly saved, and the rest there's a remnant that's left. The church is never described as being consisting of believers and unbelievers. It is described as a group of people who are holy and set apart for God. It's called a chosen race, a priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. In other words, they are, they are a holy people. He says, I have called the people who are what, not my people and I have called them beloved. And they shall be called the sons of the living God. So the church is called to be a people, a people of, to God, set apart to God, a holy people. And they are marked by what? Having the Holy Spirit. 
Paul describes him in Romans 8, 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not what belong to him. In other words, the church is made up of who? Spirit-filled believers. You must have the Holy Spirit to belong to Christ. This Spirit not only indwells the individual believer, but also places them through baptism into the body of, of Christ, which is the church. He says in 1 Corinthians 12, For even as the body is one, yet has many members, and all the members of the body, and again, that's speaking of the church, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, we were all made to drink of what? One spirit. The church is made up of who? Believers. Those who are baptized by the Spirit. The same time that you received the Holy Spirit and were indwelled by the Spirit, you were baptized by the Spirit and placing you in the what? The body of Christ. So the church is a group of Spirit-filled believers that have been baptized in the Spirit and placed into the body of Christ. Paul goes on to describe the church as temple. Do you not know that you, and this is speaking of the church, are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy. That is what you are. The church can only be a holy church if it is made up of who? Believers. You cannot be holy unless you are a believer. In fact, he makes a warning here about those who would mess with the church. God will destroy him if anyone tries to destroy the temple of God. In other words, the temple of God is made up of believers who are spirit-filled together. Again, God is interested in a, a holy church that he might present himself a church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she should be holy and blameless. How can the church be a holy bride if it is identified with unbelievers? How can we mix that up? The biblical patterns that believers in in Scripture were that believers were added to the local church. Remember Acts chapter 2, right? They what, believed, were baptized, and what? Added to their number. In other words, they knew who were believers and they knew who belonged to the church because they kept track. Acts 5.14 And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly what? Added to their number. Who was added to there? Those who believed. There's no indication in Scripture that it was any other way. The church is to be a holy bride, set apart, made of believers. Only believers are added to the local assembly. There is no sign or no initiary right for anyone outside of a believer to the church. There's no indication of anything else. And in fact, it says, but none, it says, and the hands of the, 
at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all in, with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. In other words, unbelievers stayed away. They didn't associate with the church. The church is, is to be made up of believers who come together. And I would say this. Anytime we start adding to the church a group of individuals who are unsaved, we are in danger of 2 Corinthians 6.14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? You cannot have a mixed church. There must be no confusion in the church. Baptism is for believers, for those who have come in repentance and faith. And it is ultimately that initiatory step to identify with the triune God, baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and it identifies them not only with the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, but with his body as well. And so we must not confuse people by giving baptism to anyone but believers. We must not give them assurance of a salvation they do not have. And so we must stick to the biblical example of believer's baptism to stop the confusion, to keep the purity of the church. Because after all, how do we do church discipline on those who are unbelievers? And how do we ultimately explain that those who were once part of us are no longer of us, even though they were invited in as if they belonged to us? Now, certainly we can get fooled with believer's baptism. We can. But that is the exception and not the rule. And so we must protect the purity of the church by only baptizing those who profess faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I think that the word of God is clear. I think the example of believer's baptism is clear. I think the symbolism of the baptism is clear. I think it's connection to the to the new covenant and the nature of the church make it essential that we take the biblical pattern that we baptize only believers as it, it, it is the only thing that actually glorifies our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word. And we thank you for the picture of baptism as it again demonstrates to us the divine work that you have done in us. You are the one that saved us. You are the one that regenerated us. You are the one who gave us the ability to come in faith and repentance. And so we give you all glory and honor and praise. And I pray that we would be a church that honors you as we baptize those that you save and to demonstrate to the world and to ourselves and to you the work that you have done in our heart. I thank you for this time and for your word in your name. Amen.